internet, we do welcome you this morning. With our congregation, turn with me to Psalm chapter 32, and then also to Matthew chapter 1. We will spend most of our time in Psalm 32. So turn with me there if you would. A series of messages on the cradle and the cross and how they go together. Now, most of this is going to be on the cross because that's why Jesus came. So keep that in mind, and we'll show you the, the, uh, the outline for this in just a few moments. First five verses of Psalm 32. This is one of two psalms that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba and after Nathan the prophet confronted him. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And I kept silent, my bones grew, grew old, and through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Selah. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Just to give you a sort of an introduction, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the incarnation. And Jesus, we love you, understanding that without you being born as a babe in a manger, as a babe in a cradle, there would be no cross where you shed your blood in order that we might be forgiven. In your name we pray. Amen. So first slide, brother. Uh, over these next few weeks, and I would hope to do this in four weeks, but uh, I doubt I'm going to do it in four weeks, and that's not surprising for any of you. But this morning we're going to look at forgiveness of sins. Why the cradle and the cross are essential to our being forgiven of sin. 
Next Sunday, Lord willing, if we don't finish this morning, we'll carry it over, but we'll start to look at satisfaction for sins. And we're going to the third chapter of the book of Galatians and spend some time there. The week following, couple of weeks, Christ's substitution for sins. Two different things here. Satisfaction and substitution are not the same. So we will look at satisfaction, Lord willing, beginning next week, substitution the week following, and then salvation for sins, taken from Matthew chapter 1. As you notice, we're going to open every message with Matthew chapter 1, 21. For he will save his people from their sins. Just a few weeks ago, about a month ago now, the 27th Global Climate Change Conference was held in Egypt. Gerard Baker, editor at large Wall Street Journal, wrote this about uh, a week ago. He said, the latest synod of our modern church of climate change theologians, otherwise known as COP27, concluded its uh, deliberations in Egypt with a breakthrough agreement over the loss and damage provisions of the global governance regime that they have established to tackle climate change. I wish I had time to read the entire thing, but that's not important to the overall message. What he focused on is a secular group of individuals that he refers to as climate change theologians. We could also use the word climate change Puritans. Rabbi Lord Sachs, who is an Englishman, said this. People all over the world are passionately concerned about climate change, but there's something equally more urgent. The cultural climate change. That is damaging the way we used to live and beginning to shape the way we need to live if humanity is to flourish. The Western world is a child of faith. Our creator God, we sang about him this morning. We've studied, I think Vance talked about this last Sunday night. God foreknew Adam and Eve's serious sin long before he made them in his image. He too, he knew that the perfect culture that he created, and he did, would suffer the dire consequences of the fall. His created culture would change And it would demand a redeemer. Next slide. A redeemer, a savior that Matthew said, would save his people from their sins. So when we look at this in scripture, what we learn is that the Trinity foreknew forgiveness. It was not something that they had to initiate or think about. It occurred because when God created, he understood, 
In fact, he foreknew what would take place. Now, forgiveness of sins is difficult. In Luke 5, the scribes and the Pharisees repeatedly said this about Jesus. Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In Luke 5, 24, Jesus answered them. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic that he is ministering to, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. So they murmured, Who forgives sins but God? And Jesus says, The Son of Man does. And here is the evidence of that. Don Carson, in one of his amazing little books entitled, and I've used it before, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, says this. In all of our sinning, God is inevitably the most offended party. That is why... We must have his forgiveness, or we have nothing. David expresses that in these first five verses of Psalm 32. So I want to ask you a question this morning as we start this series. Have you ever given thought to the truth that the only ground on which God forgives sins is that of Christ's death on Calvary? That's it. There's a lot of onlys with God, and that's one of the onlys. Now, this truth, and it is a biblical truth, it bewilders many. Why doesn't, doesn't God's forgiveness depend upon the necessity of God the Son's death on the cross? Could not there have been some other way? It sounds like a silly superstition that modern people should sweep under the carpet. And many, unfortunately, think that today. Next slide. There's an early church, well, not an early church father, but a church father, I guess a, a church patriarch, about the middle of the 11th century by the name of Anselm. And he wrote a book entitled Dus Homo, I'm not a Latin scholar, so I don't know if I pronounced that correctly or not. But basically it means, can God become man? And he wrote this. If anybody imagines that God can simply forgive us as we forgive others, that person has not yet considered the seriousness of sin or what a heavy weight Sin is. David talks about that in these verses. You have not yet considered either the majesty of God. When our perception of God and man or of holiness and sin are askew, then our understanding of the atonement is bound to be askew also. Does that sound familiar? It does. For God to forgive sinners is profound. Now, we take it for granted. 
but it's one of the most profound mysteries in his creation. He chose to become the God-man and invade this sin-cursed earth. And believe me, it is. All we have to do is look at Calvary. A sin-cursed earth by means of a cradle in Bethlehem. And here's the conundrum. Forgiveness of sins is therefore a problem made up of the inevitable collision of God's perfection and human rebellion. Between who God is and who I am. And today, who we are supersedes who God is. Certainly God's going to accept me. Now this is a problem that is compounded by the divine reaction of his love and wrath towards guilty sinners. God is love. John wrote that. It's found throughout Scripture. We see it a number of times. For God so loved this world of sinners. But his love is holy. We've been looking at that in the book of 1 Peter. He yearns over sins, over sinners. His desires to call them to himself. And at once he yearns over sinners and at the same time, simultaneously he refuses to condone our sin. That's a conundrum. And it's one we don't understand. (laughs) But it's biblical. Forgiveness required his holy love. Next slide. The conundrum The riddle, if you please, the mystery, if you please, is how God could express his holy love in forgiving you and I without compromising his holiness or frustrating his love. How could that take place? In Isaiah, the prophet wrote, Declare what is to be. Present it, Isaiah. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. There are no other gods of our imaginations. There are no, there is no Allah for the Islamic, for the Muslim. There is no, and Buddha, by the way, is an atheistic faith. All you have to do is study it a little bit and you'll find that out. Or Confucius, all these others, and ad infinitum. Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no God 
apart from me. A righteous God as that third part. The holiness, the wrath, the righteousness. And a Savior. There is none but me. The Trinity foreknowing the cross required a purpose in defining how to satisfy all of their holy love. To satisfy their wrath. Part of what we will look at in the, in the following weeks and to also satisfy their righteousness. It was no small thing for the Trinity to do this. On the cross, in human form, the God-man bore the wrath demanded by the Trinity's holiness. He himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he himself determined, I'll become incarnate. Something he chose to do. Something he willed to do. And he would have been right had he never chosen to do it. He also endured the judgment that we deserve according to his righteousness. Because God is righteous, there must be a judgment. To bring us forgiveness that we do not deserve. And so Isaiah would go on to write, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, I probably won't finish this this morning, but there are four concepts in the Bible that teach us about the significance of the babe in the cradle and the Lamb of God on the cross. And we're going to start to examine those this morning. The forgiveness of sin requires an understanding of these. If you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, I encourage you to pay attention if you're tuning in or you're listening because we must understand the gravity of sin. And our culture today makes light of sin. We as believers often make light of sin. Secondly, God has gifted us with human moral responsibility. It's a gift. Thirdly, we need to know the difference between true and false guilt. Sometimes we make up guilt. And then sometimes we deny true guilt. And then fourthly, we need to understand the wrath of God, which is infinitely more different than our anger. It is not the same. And if ever someone were to say to you, God is angry just like I am when I lose my temper. They are wrong. He is not. Next slide. Let's start to look this morning at the gravity of sin. And look at the first two verses here in Psalm 32. <clears throat> As I said, one of 
two psalms he wrote after his sin with Bathsheba, his confrontation with uh, Nathan. The other is Psalm 51. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, if you mention sin today, almost everybody will ignore the ramifications of sin. In fact, if you mention sin in a mixed crowd, often what happens is people just sort of gravitate away from you. The word has dropped out of vogue. We've talked about this at length. And so today, many, and unfortunately, there are evangelicals that think that the word is meaningless. And if it is mentioned, it's likely to be misunderstood. It's likely to be misinformed. We, like, we are likely to become misinformed because people don't understand the biblical nature of sin. Now, there are five words here, and we're not going to spend a great deal of time on it, but I want you to understand that when we talk about the gravity of sin, sin has a, a depth to our wickedness that we often do not see because we just see the word sin and we say, oh, you know, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, all God's children are sinners. Well, in the New Testament, there are five. Three of them are passive, which means sometimes we can sin just by our thoughts. Jesus taught about this in the Sermon on the Mount, did he not? And then two of them are active, which means that we commit these sins. And essentially, David is talking about the committing of sins here. He's looking back to what occurred, his adulterous situation with Bathsheba, and then the murder of her husband. And so that falls under the category of the, uh, of the third bullet point there. But the first word that's used is harmadia. In fact, the teaching of the, the doctrine in Scripture is called the doctrine of homardiology, teaching rather of, of sin. And it means to miss a, a target or to fail to attain a goal. We're going to do this over the next few weeks. Some of you are going to set New Year's resolutions. You're going to say, this is what I'm going to do. And so you start out of the gate, and then somebody closes the gate. More often than not, we close the gate. It's the most used word in the Bible. It's a passive term. Secondly, adikiah, which is unrighteousness or iniquity. And David uses that term there in verse 2. It is a passive term again. He's looking back, remember. It's happened. Third is poneria. This is a vicious and degenerate evil Last couple of Sundays in 1 Peter chapter 2, we were looking at the fact that someone may slander us or call you wicked. That's the word that's being used there, Poneria. And these two, Atticiah and Poneria, define inner corruption. It's what happens when we think evil about someone. It's what happens when we become jealous towards someone or envy or, or fabricate false truths. 
It's a character perversion. Too active. Parabasis, which is, trans, uh, which is trespass or transgression. And in order for you to trespass on land, you have to walk across it or drive across it or something of that nature. That's active. Stepping over a known boundary. We have, you have, those of you that own homes, you have a lot or land that that home is built on. There are boundaries. And if someone trespasses, they step over that known boundary. This is what we do when we break the law of God. We step over a known boundary. And the final one is the word anomia, which is lawlessness. And we'll see that quoted here in just a moment. Basically, a disregard or a violation of a known law. And all of these in the Bible, so not just the word sin. Sin can be translated from these words. Sometimes it's evil, sometimes it's wickedness, sometimes it's iniquity, sometimes it's trespass, sometimes it's transgression, but it comes from the understanding of these words. And all of these are used to define how you and I have violated the Creator's laws how we have crushed his ideals. Next slide, Jeff, if you would. So here's the thing, and I think we know this, but this, and some of this is, uh, is, a, uh, uh, is a review, but it's important that we understand why and how we can be forgiven. God's moral law expresses his righteousness. And here's the thing. We're studying the book of Exodus on Sunday evening, and we'll be there perhaps next year in, verse, in chapters 19 through 20 and 21. It's not God's law only. He gave the law to you and I. He gifted it to us. When God gives... It's a gift. It's our law because we're made in his image. Now, in 1 John, John would use the word for lawlessness when he talks and defines sin. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Well, if we break the law and sin is lawlessness... And if we are made in God's image and the, and the law is good for us, then what we have done is we have broken something that was good for us and it brings us harm when we do so. When we break the law of God, which is an expression of his righteousness, when we break the law of God, we strive against our highest welfare. The law given for our highest welfare. Now much of the law in the Old Testament, 600 and some odd pieces of the law, and most of that law is ceremonial. We are not under that obligation anymore, but the moral law still restricts and constrains us inasmuch as we always fight against it. But it was given to us to free us. 
So we strive against our own highest welfare as, as well as against the authority and the love of God. So you and I, sinners, maintain a godless self-centeredness. When we become self-centered, it's godless. There's no, there's no saying, well, God wanted me to do this because it's good for me. A godless self-centeredness in when we continue to sin. And every sin, you remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus, tell me which of the laws I need to keep. And Jesus said, well, you need to keep the Shema, which is the greatest commandment, the first and the greatest commandment. And you also need to love your brother as yourself. Well, when we sin, we breach those two commandments primarily. Now, there may be others. We fail to love God. We fail to love others. And we love ourselves by actively refusing to obey our Creator and our God. And that's a bad thing. It's not good. That is what constrains us from inside. David says that. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute, does not place on my account iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. So what happens when we do this? We, we proclaim our self-dependence. We proclaim our autonomy. <laughs> I don't need a preacher telling me what, what I can and cannot do. No, you don't. <laughs> but you do need the Word of God. And we proclaim our autonomy and we occupy the position that God should occupy. So, and I've heard this, and I've even said this. Sin is a mistake. It's just a mistake. It's a, it's a regrettable lapse from some arbitrary standard. But what the Bible teaches, it's hostility. It is rebellion to God himself. Next slide, brother. Now, here's the thing. A theologian by the name of uh, Emil Bruner wrote a book entitled Man in Revolt. And then this, he said this. He defined sin. Sin is defiance. It's also arrogance. It's the desire to be equal with God. Why was Lucifer cast out of heaven? Because he desired to be God. Why were Adam and Eve cast out of the Garden of Eden? Because they desired to be like God. There is no other. God has no equals. God knows we're not his equal. He goes on to say the assertion of human independence over and against God, exalting self, the constitution of the autonomous reason, morality, and culture. We assert our dependence, our independence rather, and because we, God has gifted us with the ability to reason, we falsely, accuse, or falsely assume that the reason that God has given us sometimes is superior to God. Look at today's, uh, again, and I don't want to harp on the culture too much, but I want you to understand this. Look at today's culture. If you don't use the right pronouns, then there are those that will 
seize upon the opportunity to say that you're wrong. So that's an arrogance. Not only that, but they'll seize upon the opportunity to say that God is wrong. That too is an arrogance. That too is a defiance. Because it goes against the created, the creator, and eventually to the Redeemer. So we read the, these first five verses here this morning. And in these first two verses, he talks about the gravity of sin and how that impacted him. About 50 years ago now, a man by the name of Carl Menninger wrote a book. And Menninger was uh, uh, Jewish. He's uh, since passed on, but he's also a, uh, um, a psychiatrist. And he wrote a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. And in this book, he predicted that the term sin, the biblical term sin, would be replaced with words like illness, disorder, dysfunction, syndrome, etc. A number of other, not other terms. It wasn't unique to him. He was pretty much the guy that just codified it, put it in writing. The human condition will be excused as a product of biochemistry. Something's, something's off here. Something's wrong in your blood, something's wrong in your genes, something's wrong in your cells, something's wrong. We know that. We're aging. We know that. Human condition will be excused as a product of biochemistry, as a product of our environment. We know that. As a product of experience and trauma. Even crime will go unpunished as criminal activity will be justified and minimized as a result of some medical abnormality. For which one could not be held responsible. He goes on, 50 years ago now. The day is coming when practically everyone will be considered sick and their conduct pardonable. No longer would there be any liability for human error or human choice and willful conduct. Everyone would be innocent. Vindicated through biology, psychiatry, and humanistic reasoning. Does that sound familiar? I think it does. Now, again, this is not unique over the past 50 years. It's been occurring for quite a, quite a bit longer than that. Next slide, if you would, brother. <clears throat> One of the unique things about this book is he takes preachers to task 50 years ago now. And he said this about preachers. He said, the clergyman cannot minimize sin. He can't minimize sin and maintain his proper role in our culture. Sin is an implicitly aggressive reality. It's a ruthlessness. It's a hurting. It's a breaking away from God and from the rest of humanity. It's a partial alienation. It's an act of rebellion. His words. Sin is a willful, 
defiant, or disloyal quality. Someone is defied or offended or hurt. So, when sinners begin to understand the gravity of sin, there's hope. It should not make us depressed other than the fact that we're still in our sins. There's hope. It reasserts our moral responsibility. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 32. I acknowledged my sin to you. So let me ask you this question this morning. When you sin and you pray, do you call out your sins specifically? You should know them by now. If you've been saved for any length of time, people do not need to define for you that, well, what you just did was sin. Well, sometimes maybe they do. But most of you, having a, a, a fair understanding of the Word of God, would be like David. I acknowledge my sin to you. It's not just here. It's on my lips. I verbalize this. And my iniquity I have not hidden. Now, obviously, it's not hidden from the Lord. But David was saying, I didn't squelch it. Now, before Nathan came and stood before David and gave him that... that, uh, a parable of the poor man having one lamb and the rich man having a whole slew of lambs and the rich man taking the poor man's lamb and then killing the man. And David said, this man needs to be put to death. And Nathan said, you're the man, David. So this went on for, the child had been born. So this went on for at least nine months. David was sweeping his sin under the carpet, under the carpet. David was making adjudications for the people of Israel. David was going to the tabernacle. David was being the king over Israel. And then a prophet shows up. A preacher shows up. And one of the things that we learn from David is the Bible talks about him as a man with God's own heart, uh, after God's own heart. And the reason is that very verse right there. I acknowledged my sin. When he was confronted with his sin, now he had tried to hide it. Peter tried to hide it. He stood afar off as they were judging Jesus and taking him from one portion of the out of, out, out of ring of the temple to the other. And he cursed and swore. He tried to hide it. And eventually, when Jesus made his final journey across the avenue, Jesus turned and looked at him, and the Bible says that Peter was convicted and went out and wept bitterly. That's what you see here. They understand the gravity of their sin. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah, think about this. 
That's why I opened this morning with, with that phrase. Have you ever thought about what it took for God to forgive us? This was what God purposed by laying his son on a cradle. We talked the gravity of sin. The second thing is human moral responsibility. We just read verse 5. There's a strong biblical emphasis on the influence of our inheritance of sin from Adam. Strong. Carries all the way through. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 7 said this. From within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Not much of you left undone, is it? All these evil things, all these panerias, the word used there, all these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. So when we talk about environment influencing people, the environment has little work to do because within us are these evil thoughts and immorality. So David understood this. We too need to understand this as well. Next slide, if you would, brother. Jesus himself would say in John chapter 8, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, that's how dangerous sin is. It's not that we pick and choose it. It's that it is within us, Jesus said in Mark 7, and he said, when you practice it, John said it's lawlessness. Now Jesus says you're a slave to it. And slaves, unless they're freed, he goes on in John chapter 8 and says, and if the Son of Man will make you free, you will be free indeed. Slaves, unless they are made free, usually do not live very long lives. And we are enslaved to the world. John wrote about this in 1 John and chapter 2. Public fashions. Again, it comes back to their culture. Opinions. Conspiracy theories. You can go on and on and on. We're enslaved to them. This little light of mine. We're enslaved to them. We're enslaved to the flesh. The sarks. Paul would write about this extensively in the book of Romans. And we're enslaved to the, to the devil, to the demonic forces that permeate this world that we don't see. The Bible says that we are enslaved. And as believers, even as Christ has liberated us and set us free, and as he has made us slaves to him, we still struggle to be released from the insidious power of our sin. 
God foreknew this. He knew we needed forgiveness. He knew David needed forgiveness. He, kn- he knew that E.G. Carey Jr. needed forgiveness. And he knows that you need forgiveness. Now the scripture, the second thing we're looking at here is human moral responsibility. The scripture always assumes that we're going to be responsible for our sin. There is never a man or a woman, boy or girl within scripture that gets by with any excuse. Responsible moral agents. I'm speaking to, for the most part, responsible people this morning. Perhaps you're listening and watching and I trust that you're responsible. But there is a secular responsibility for doing our jobs and going to school and being good to our families and all of these things. And then there's a spiritual responsibility. Now we tend to be very good at doing what we need to do in the outside world. But when it comes for the inside, to the inside, we tend to, to, to uh, shrug our shoulders and say, well, I'll take care of that tomorrow. We procrastinate. That's what David did. Scripture treats us as responsible moral agents. And our responsibility before God is an inalienable aspect of our human dignity. Again, why is David a man after God's own heart? Because he was responsible. After the word of God was, was uh, told to him, he repented. Now, he should have done it before, but God was merciful to him. Now, the final expression of God's giving us the gift of responsibility will be on his judgment day. Have you ever thought of that? On judgment day. For us as believers, for you and I that know the Lord Jesus as believers, what's referred to as the beam of seat judgment, we will give an account and God will hold us morally responsible for how we have lived since we have been born again. And for those of you perhaps that do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior and you choose never to repent of your sins and call out to Him in faith and call to His grace and His mercy and be born again, you too will be given the final expression of your responsibility on His judgment day. No one will ever be sentenced without a trial. We're created in his image, and all people, great and small, rich and poor, healthy and infirm, irrespective of social class, will stand before God's throne. We'll give a final token of respect for his image and our responsibility. God's true to his word. His promises are true. If we accept the spiritual responsibility we have to understand the gravity of sin, call out to him, he will save us. Human responsibility is not a task. 
It's a gift that's granted to all. I would not be worth my salt if on Sunday morning, if I didn't pay, pay any attention whatsoever to the word, to the message, to what God's called me to do during the week, and then on Sunday morning I just get, get up and read three or four verses and say, well, that, that sounds good, doesn't it? Thank you, thank you for the word of the Lord. Let's pray and go home. I have a moral responsibility that God has given to me because he has gifted me to be a pastor of the wonderful folk here at, Flat Creek, at the Flat Creek family. In fact, I probably wouldn't do that very long until I received a phone call or emails or people would generally talk to you and say, is something wrong? If you did that in your job, it wouldn't be long before somebody says, hey, is something wrong? God gifts us with understanding that we are responsible because we are in his image. Is he not responsible? Then we're to be responsible. It is the substance of our existence. It distinguishes us from other creatures. The moral responsibility that God has given to us. Next slide, and with this we'll close. <clears throat> Sin has weakened our resistance to what is real. We don't like to be faced with situations that are confrontational and sin and the holiness and righteousness of God is confrontational. To be responsible means that we are being clear about what we believe to be real. Do you believe the word? If you believe it, let's be clear about why we believe it and know that it's real. God did this in God the Son. He shouldered our responsibility. When we were derelict in our duty, God shouldered our responsibility. And he reconciled guilty sinners, foreknowing the babe in swaddling clothes and the Lamb of God that would, from the babe would grow the Lamb of God that would be nailed to a cross that was meant for us. In order for God to give, forgive and for us to be forgiven, we need to understand the gravity of sin. In order for God to give and for us to be forgiven, we need to understand that we have a moral responsibility to respond to him. The next Sunday, we'll pick up with number three and number four, and we'll move into satisfaction. True and false guilt. If we have sinned, and we have, And if we are responsible, and we are, then we are guilty before God. David says this so beautifully. Look at the last two verses here in Psalm 32, verses 10 and 11. 
Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now this was a man that almost lost his life because he disobeyed his Lord. David understood that. And so when he writes, he talks about, and we'll look at this next Sunday when we talk about guilt, but he talks about in those middle verses there, he talks about having a weight of sin upon him. Do you have that this morning? The weight of sin? When you sin, does that sin appear, or the sins appear to be a weight, a gravity, because we have neglected the seriousness of how we have forsaken God? Now, Israel, God did not speak to Israel for 400 years after Malachi. No dead silence. Now they thought they were doing everything right. And then a baby shows up with a promise that he will forgive his people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word this morning. We thank you for the cradle. And as we worship you this morning, we should always be reminded that the cradle meant the cross. A cross that was meant for us. And yet, your son. And Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. You became not only the satisfaction for your father, but you came, became the substitution for our sins. I pray that you would have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of the service this morning. Use it by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing one verse of a hymn to close this morning. If the Lord has spoken to you today and you do not know the Lord as Savior, we can't save you. I hope that through the understanding of the Word of God, you understand the gravity of all sin. We rank them, but God doesn't. All sin. So as we sing, we'll give you an opportunity to respond. Call out to Jesus Christ who alone will forgive you, and he will save you. He will deliver you. That's what the word save means. Deliver you from the wrath of his Father. That is coming. That's the promise that he's given to us. Make your way out of the pew. We'll take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. You know the Lord will save you. Perhaps you need to follow him in believer's baptism or Join and unite with us by a statement of faith or transfer of letter. We encourage you to do that this day as well as a child of God. Beautiful sanctuary that God has given us. Beautiful homes that we decorate. And we talk about the cradle all the time. There should be a cross in your home to remind you that where God began on earth, 
be completed.